pioneers of the new science. We have spoken about the nature of visible light, light in the material world, which is a range of etheric vibrations that's perceptible to our eye. We all know from school, any light vibrations that are higher or lower than the range perceivable by our eye is what we call darkness. We also spoke of a main characteristic of the ether, and thus a main characteristic of visible light called imprinting. The imprinting nature of life is what makes sight possible on the material plane of existence. We gave the example of visible light striking on a tree, and that light is reflected back to our eye and contains a complete, perfect, imprinted image of the tree's form and texture. Then that image enters the eyeball, strikes the optic nerve, and is converted to minute electrical impulses that register on the visual cortex of the brain as sight. Once the visible light containing the image of a tree is transformed into electrical impulses, it's no longer visible light. Now the electrical impulse carries the imprint of the image of that tree along the optic nerve to the visual cortex of the brain, and we say we see. But there is no visible light in the optic nerve or the brain. All etheric vibrations, and thus visible light, has this imprinting quality. This is true not only of light of the third dimension, but in all the higher dimensions as well. Now in the higher dimensions, we also have more abundant light. There is light in the fourth dimension of the psychical worlds that some call the astral light. At a higher level, there is noetical light of the fifth dimensional worlds. Still higher, we find the noetic light, which is what religion is calling the everlasting light or the inextinguishable light. Scientifically speaking, we can call it the superlight. Attuning to the noetical and noetic light gives us profound understandings and inspiration. The phrase, the light of understanding, is a reference to knowledge and inspiration carried by noetical light. Where is all this higher dimensional light? It is coexisting simultaneously through the entire material universe, but it is vibrating at an octave higher than material light. So unless you can raise your consciousness high enough to reach the level of psychical and noetical light, you will not be able to perceive anything of the reality of these higher dimensions. It is interesting to note that what mankind calls inspiration and understanding is so often associated with light. We've all seen the image of a light bulb illuminating over someone's head when they get a great idea. Great moments of scientific discoveries often come as flashes of insight. Gutenberg described his idea for the first printing press as if it were coming on a beam of light. Einstein is said to have had his idea for the theory of relativity in a dream where he was writing on a beam of light. Scientific, artistic, and spiritual breakthroughs are commonly referred to as a kind of mystical light dawning experience, because it is. In all of creation, there's an infinitely greater amount of light than what we can perceive with our material eyes. Maybe it's higher than the rate of vibrations we can see with our material eyes, but it's light. In Christianity and other religions, they call God the light. For Christ, they say he's the light from the light. Since God is, that means the light is. Since God exists, the light also exists. Since God is omnipresent, the light is also omnipresent. But of course, this kind of light is not only the range of visible light. As we stated previously, these higher dimensional worlds coexist and are intermingled with our three-dimensional reality. 
they exist at higher rates of vibration. These higher worlds exert an influence on the lower worlds of existence. And this is what Plato was teaching 2,400 years ago. He was saying that all the forms we see existing around us get their shape, definition, and owe their existence to a higher state of reality. He called this higher state the world of the pure ideas. In our system, we call it the noetic state. In this higher noetic state, we find the archetypal ideas for everything that exists. Religion refers to this as a divine plan. An archetypal idea contains the laws, causes, and principles that govern all forms of life. Plato referred to the world of the pure ideas in a similar way, stating that the transient life forms we see around us are like three-dimensional shadows cast from this higher reality. And he gave his famous cave analogy to describe this. Today, we might state the truth like this. All forms of life we see existing around us are like living holograms that are projected from the archetypal ideas contained in the eternal noetic state. The unchanging archetypal ideas with their laws, causes, and principles are permanent, whereas their shadows, the material forms we see on earth, are short-lived and temporary. All these material forms, as well as the mundane heavens and earth, are not permanent, but the laws causing them and governing them are permanent. Christ stated it this way, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. Tittle means the smallest part of something. Now, the researchers of truth are not teaching imaginary things. We teach what comes from centuries of research and is confirmed by our own direct engagements with these higher-level realities. Really, what we are teaching could rightly be called the science of sciences. The researchers of truth are pioneers of this new science. Our teachings are congruent with knowledge from science, but this knowledge is also more advanced than what science has discovered so far. And that's the textbook definition of mystical knowledge. Mystics are those who have knowledge and abilities beyond that of the common person. Let's talk about God. What are the prime characteristics of God? In its appearance as the Trinity, we understand God the Father as a total wisdom, and God the Son expressing total love. We also understand God as the Holy Spirit, expressing total power, or what the Church calls the Almightiness. We see these divine characteristics imbued in the archetypal ideas, laws, and causes we just mentioned. They are expressed on earth and in the other dimensions as well. For example, we see the total love expressed in the material universe as the scientific law of cohesion, creating chemical bonds of matter. What is the law by which energy becomes matter and matter converts back into energy? Science found this out. We are not teaching something opposed to orthodox science. Where is the total wisdom in matter? It is in the motion and in the harmony and the laws of order and balance. When science split the atom, they found a nucleus made of neutrons and protons with electrons orbiting around the nucleus. That's motion. Their different combinations, distances, and speeds of the orbiting electrons around the nucleus are in perfect harmony, and that gives us all the forms of solid matter. Despite the fact that atoms are made up of 99.9% .9 of empty space, they seem solid to our touch. These kinds of things have been proven by orthodox science in recent history, but have been known to the mystics for centuries. 
For example, it was around 1900 that an American mystic named Blavatsky described and drew the internal structure of the atom as we know it today. This was a decade or so before Danish physicist Niels Bohr even suggested that an atom's electrons were confined into orbits. Now, looking at a solar system, what do we see? The same laws, causes, and principles that govern an atom govern an entire solar system. It is the same. The solar system has a nucleus, just like an atom. This nucleus is our sun, of course. Like the orbiting electrons around the nucleus of an atom, the planets orbit at different distances and speeds around the sun. Each planet is getting its proper orbit based on its size, distance, and speeds. This is the total wisdom of God expressed in material laws of order and balance. Just think, our Earth orbits 93 to 95 million miles from the sun. Any closer or farther away, and life on Earth as we know it would be impossible. Just like the Earth, atoms also have a north and south magnetic pole. Just like the atom, the solar system is also 99.9% so-called empty space. Could all these parallels between an atom and a solar system just be a coincidence? It turns out, empty space of the universe is not really empty. Today, physicists speak of space as a quantum vacuum flux. They are calling this vast field of potentiality zero-point energy. Mystics refer to the energy of space as cosmic energy, which they have determined has nine main discernible frequencies and is present everywhere in space. There are many points in agreement between the mystic and the scientists concerning the nature of reality. This should not be a surprise. Scientific research often comes to prove empirically what mystical research has previously stated, or what Sufi mystics said in the early 1900, what science realizes in the end, mysticism realizes from the beginning. For example, mystics in the distant past in India and China and other places gave detailed information about the body's nervous system and the circulatory system hundreds of years before medical science discovered their existence. If you go deep enough into the research of both science and mysticism, you will find that both are researching and discovering the same truths concerning the material universe. Yet we see different descriptions of one reality created by different scientists, religions, and mystics. Just think about the maps of North America drawn by the early explorers during the Age of Discovery. Those maps do not all look the same, even though they were all attempting to depict the same reality. So it's similar with science and spiritual explorers. They, too, draw different maps of the same reality based on their own observations and perspectives. This brings up an important point to remember. When we are researching the truth of anything, we must not be impatient. We should not rush to conclusions or be overly excited. In the research of truth, there is a need for rationalism, concentration, and, as we progress, we will correct our previous views and understandings accordingly. We are continually moving on. We do not stop at any one point because there is no end to the research of truth. We are always advancing. We are always ascending the ladder of relative truth towards the absolute truth. Day by day, week to week, and year to year, orthodox science tends to prove the truth of mysticism. The great knowledge of the mystics and the researchers through all the ages is being proved by science using their methods. Mystics find the proof of God in all the forms of life as expressions of the total wisdom, love, and power.
Just think of the marvelous and complex work being done just in your material body, all in perfect harmony. This alone should be enough to convince us of the reality of the superintelligence behind this great work. It does not matter if you call that God, absolute beingness, the superintelligence, or true life. In fact, these terms come closer to the reality than the overused word God. But just because we do not perceive God with our earthly brains does not mean such a thing as God does not exist. There is a life giver behind all the phenomena of life and in all the phenomena of life. Look at the seed, for example, of a eucalyptus tree. Its seeds look like a tiny seed of a mustard plant. It's smaller than the head of a pin. Not even a science can tell the two apart by looking at them. Yet a eucalyptus tree can reach a height of 200 feet, whereas a mustard plant only grows one to two feet tall. So here we have one of the smallest seeds, but it encodes within it the full set of instructions as genetic code necessary to produce a giant eucalyptus tree. Give it the proper growing conditions and that tiny seed will grow into a mature tree and produce countless numbers of other seeds. Each one of those seeds contains the code for the entire possibility of its form of life. No matter what kind of seed we have, it always gives us the same kind of plant and a multitude of more seeds of its own kind. Never can we sow one kind of seed and get a different kind of plant. An apple seed will always produce an apple tree. Likewise, mankind has never seen a lion or any other animal give birth to a different kind of animal. A lion always begets a lion, and a lion today behaves as all lions have behaved in all past times. This is due to the inescapable laws governing the circles of possibilities for each and every form of life. We all see these different expressions of life, and according to the Christian religion, it is the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, that is at the source. A researcher of truth studies both science and religion to reach the truth. What is the relationship between the research of truth, orthodox science, and orthodox religion? Does our research of truth conflict with orthodox science? No. In fact, it complements it. We do not undervalue the achievements of modern science. We learn from them. Does our research of truth clash with orthodox religion? No. We agree with the teachings of those enlightened ones in the past who gave us the religions. However, we're not obligated to accept the religious prejudice and short-sighted dogma that for centuries have been heaped on all religions. Studying the different religions, we can see that religion explains the nature of reality just about as completely as science does. And the religions reward their followers with exactly the same thing that science gives their followers. Certainty. The major difference is that science certainty changes all the time. Religion certainty, not so much. The research of truth is not a difficult way. The thing you need most is to be honest with yourself. We need sincerity and a little time to study and practice each day. In today's world, we all have access to great scientific and esoteric knowledge. But just believing what others say in blind faith is not satisfying to a rational person. Christ said, Seek the truth, and the truth will set you free. He did not advise us just to believe what others tell us the truth is. He did not say one person should find the truth and all the others should follow them blindly. This is a very important point to remember. Christ's gentle persuasion was that we must seek and find the truth for ourselves. And what does the truth set us free from? 
Truth frees us from our illusions, which are the source of our troubles, sorrows, and despairs. Of course, in the beginning, you may accept the truth from a wise authority or someone you love. But be aware, you should not accept everything a person says without thinking about it. Personality cults do this, and we've seen many times they are quite dangerous. We must accept guidance from our teachers that we know to be honest and trustworthy people, but always leave room for questioning. A researcher of truth should be like a burning question mark. So we have our system, a system by which we research the truth. Our system is just like a scientific method used by scientists. That means the system we teach can be followed by anyone, anywhere, and will give them the same results regardless of their belief, nationality, or religious orientation. It is a positive and practical way to approach the truth of God, man, and the nature of reality. One of our great pleasures is in realizing what is discovered by science is in agreement with our own research. Therefore, a researcher of truth is certain about the validity of his discoveries. There is no conflict. Both science and the research of truth follow similar paths towards knowledge. One branch of our research concerns the nature of reality. This study initially seeks to understand the relative reality of our three-dimensional world and also the reality and conditions of the fourth-dimensional worlds we will reside in when we pass over. Most people don't know about the worlds of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh dimension. The church does believe in them without really knowing what they are. The church just refers to these as the seven heavens. What the church calls the seventh heaven is really the seventh dimension. Even the most advanced mystics who have been able to reach this state cannot express much about this luminous reality. They can say it's splendid, beautiful, glorious, but no earth language can adequately express the reality of the seventh heaven. Christ spoke about the kingdoms of the heavens, heavens, not just one heaven. Similarly, in India, they speak about the seven lokas. Loka means world. Here we see two different systems speaking of the same reality in their own way. Where are these higher heavens? The kingdom of the heavens is within you, as Christ said. In us where? The kingdom of the heavens is in your own divine nature. This is what is meant by the statement, as a personality you live on earth, but as a spirit soul the earth lives in you. Let's speak about the world we all know, the material earth. Earth is the first heaven. Going back before the time of Christ, the ancients believed and taught about the four building blocks of matter. They are the so-called four elements, earth, air, and fire, and water. Then Plato and his student Aristotle came along to speak an additional element they called ether. This is the first Western public record we know of that mentions the etheric element. Of course, in India and other places, they knew and taught about the ether long before this. In India, they call it prana. Aristotle called the etheric the fifth essence. In his Greek language, the fifth essence was ton lucia. Later, this became in Latin quincentia, which meant the fifth essence. And that word eventually became the word quinescence in an English language. Today, quinescence means the purest example of something. Certainly, ether qualifies as the purest example of matter. It is invisible to the eye, like the areas, and yet it's still matter, still part of the third dimension. Long after Aristotle, the English physicist Sir Isaac Newton 
who is considered one of the greatest scientists in history, cited this all-pervading ether and absolute space in the context of physical laws. Then in England in 1803, there was a young genius named Thomas Young. Then in England in 1803, a young genius named Young, Thomas Young, demonstrated that light traveled in waves through some unexplained medium. Scientists of the time correctly labeled this unknown medium as the luminiferous ether, which means light-bearing ether. Scientists at the time correctly theorized that ether was an electromagnetic medium that filled the atmosphere and outer space and was a carrier of electromagnetic waves. Now, all this scientific speculation about ether started a race to quantify it, led by the top brain power of the day. At the end of the 1800s, Albert Mitchelson and Edward Moray attempted to identify and measure this mysterious invisible substance. Unfortunately, when their rudimentary instruments could not detect ether, conventional science just seemed to lose interest in the idea of ether as a fifth element. Yet years later, we see great scientists like Einstein and Nikolai Tesla confirming their belief in the ether. For the researchers of truth, etheric vitality is well known and regularly used in our meditation practices. With a little training and a little time, anyone who's earnest can learn to use the ether in three of its four main states. Once you are able to do that, you will not need science to prove that ether exists. What mystics in the past times and various cultures have discovered is that all matter has an etheric component, including our material body. It serves as a mold in which and by which matter is created and it serves as a mold in which and by which matter is created and sustained. Every cell, every molecule, every atom has an etheric counterpart. This etheric counterpart is within and extends slightly outside the body. The body's so-called aura is simply the light emanations coming from the etheric double of our body. And it's the same with planet Earth. The planet Earth has an etheric counterpart, which is centered on the planet's core and is within the entire planet and extends for thousands of miles all around the planet. But the etheric counterpart of Earth or any other heavenly body does not touch the etheric counterpart of the other heavenly bodies. Maybe you felt that scientific knowledge and mystical knowledge are opposed to each other because of their different approaches to finding the truth. On the one hand, we have the esoteric knowledge of the mystic. Esoteric comes from the Greek language and means knowledge from within us. Scientific knowledge is exoteric knowledge. Exoteric is also from the Greek language, and it means knowledge that comes from the outside external world. However, in the medieval ages, there was an attempt to combine scientific knowledge and mystical knowledge into one science called alchemy. A main pursuit of the alchemists was in searching for a way to turn base metals like lead into gold. The alchemists tried long and hard, but at the end they failed and wasted their time. The reason they could not turn lead into gold was not that it was entirely impossible, but mankind had not advanced enough to reach that state. There's an old Muslim story about a simple, unassuming villager who had been able to learn how to turn lead into gold. Word spread of his miraculous ability and came to the attention of the king, which interested him greatly. The king immediately summoned the alchemist and asked him to reveal the secret for turning lead into gold, and he would reward the alchemist with anything he wanted. But the alchemist said, no, you've got the wrong man. But everyone tells me you can do this, the king retorted. Again, the alchemist claimed, I do not know such thing. You found the wrong person. So the king countered with, 
Then I will put you in prison for six weeks, and if you've not told me by then, you will be put to death. The alchemist said, do what you like, but I'm not the person you seek. He was imprisoned, and every morning the king came to him and tried the approach of demanding to be told the secret of alchemy. And every morning the alchemist would deny knowing the secret. But every night the king also tried the opposite approach. At night the king took on the role of a prison guard and came to the alchemist and served him humbly. Each night the guard would bring the alchemist food and care for him. He brought him blankets when it was cold and fanned him when it was hot. The king really became a loving servant to the alchemist, and everything a person could do, he did for the alchemist. Six weeks passed like this. Then one morning the king came and declared, Your time is up. This is your last opportunity to tell me the secret, or tomorrow you will die. But the alchemist confirmed once more that he did not know this secret. That night the guard came to the alchemist for the last time and told him, I'm sorry, I do not know how to save you. I only know how to serve you. The alchemist leaned over and whispered the secret of alchemy in the guard's ear and then said, It's better for me to die than to give the secret of alchemy to the unworthy. You are worthy. The king is not. The next day, the morning of the execution, the king opened the prison cell and told the alchemist, You're free to go. You gave me the secret. The alchemist said, I did not give you the secret. I gave it to the guard. Now, in the symbolic story, we see two ways in which to approach gaining mystical knowledge. One way is by demanding it, which never works. The other way is by becoming it. The process the king went through to become the humble, loving servant is true alchemy. The king, as the servant, did not really learn how to turn lead into gold. He turned his heart into gold. This was done through the process of the king humbling himself and serving the imprisoned alchemist with real love. We see in our society today that a tremendous effort has been made to advance materially by improving the standard of living, which is good. This explosive material achievement has brought great increase in the quantity and ease of material life, but has it provided a better inner quality to our life? Are we happier? If we overlook our spiritual needs in the pursuit of material needs, we will not find lasting peace or satisfaction in life. Real spiritual growth, real and lasting satisfaction, requires harmonious and proportional achievements at all levels, not just the material. To be able to enter the gates of advanced esoteric knowledge, the first thing we must understand is what service is, what compassion is, and what sincerity is. This is what Gandhi was saying about the dangers of our society when our efforts to advance are not proportionally balanced. Gandhi pointed out the dangers of progressing in science without developing humanity, or succeeding in business without developing ethics, or engaging in politics without having principles. These dangers are even more prevalent in today's world. Just turn on the TV news and you'll see. Now, many of you have read unofficial accounts about Daskalos' life. Some of you already know that once Daskalos did an alchemy experiment, but to avoid any sense of materialistic gain, he tried turning gold into silver. I heard him tell the story this way. The day he tried the experiment, he sent his children to the neighbors to play so he could concentrate on the experiment and not be disturbed. He asked his wife to stand guard outside the front door and not to let anyone come in or tell anyone about what he was up to. Then he took the wife's gold wedding ring and went to his room and began. He explained the steps he went through 
and the specific process of how he changed the gold into silver at the atomic level. And he did manage to change his wife's gold wedding ring into a silver one. While he was doing this experiment, a couple of his students came to the house to see him, and his wife would not let them in. However, as Daskalo submitted, his wife could not keep a secret and succumbed to the temptation of gossip and told the students what Daskalos was attempting to accomplish. After the experiment, he emerged from the house to find his wife and the keenly interested students on the front porch. One of the students said, We know what you're trying to do. But when they saw that he actually was successful, it frightened them a bit and they soon left. At which point he turned and gave his wife back the silver wedding ring. She immediately complained, saying, I want the gold one. So Daskalos changed it back for her. As I said, an unofficial version of this story was published in the late 80s. It came to an attention of an American interested in alchemy. So this fellow got on a plane and flew to Cyprus to learn the secret of alchemy from Daskalos. He requested to talk to Daskalos privately and tells him how he read about Daskalos' work and so he came to Cyprus. Good. What branch of teachings interests you, Daskalos asked. Physical healing or psychotherapy? The American said, no, I want to learn how to turn lead into gold. Dasklos asked, don't you want to help relieve people of their suffering? The American brazenly admitted he did not care about the people. He just wanted Dasklos to show him how to turn lead into gold. Dasklos said, I'm not going to teach you this. Besides, if I did tell you how it was done, you would not understand. The American reassured Dasklos that indeed he would understand if Dasklos would only tell him. Daskalos started laughing and said, I will not teach you how to turn lead to gold, but I can teach you how to turn the lead in your heart to gold. I'm not interested in that, the American replied, and left Daskalos' home thoroughly disappointed. For me, this story reveals much about who and what Daskalos is. He was not one to put a sharp hands in the knife of a child, but he was one to put a sharp knife in the hands of a surgeon who would do good works with it. In other words, he did not reveal the secrets of his teachings to curious or ambitious people, but he would diligently help any sincere seeker of the truth, whether that person was a true believer or an atheist. This alchemy story also reveals the essence of the teachings of the researcher of truth, which is about the transformation of our personalities in perfect self-awareness into perfect soul self-awareness. This is the aim of the researcher of truth, and this aim is called self-realization which is the breaking of our misidentification with the baser elements of our personality self. We do this by cleaning the personality of its fears, jealousy, hatreds, and weaknesses. We do this in order to transmute our personality self-awareness into the gold of soul self-awareness. Questions Daskalos mentions two different realms, noetical and noetic. Can you speak of the difference? The word noetic and noetic come from the Greek language and means the mind. The noetic state has a higher and lower part. No words from any language can adequately describe this glorious realm. Here is the home of the archetypes of everything coming into existence. These archetypes contain the laws, causes, and principles that govern everything in the worlds of existence. The noetical worlds also have a higher and lower component. It is in the noetical worlds that we first see the appearance of the all-living forms of life. And by forms of life, I mean bodily forms, not the archetypal forms which are in the noetic state. These noetical worlds, just like the psychic worlds, are made up of seven main planes of existence, each with seven subplanes, 49 in all. 
The noetical world is much bigger and brighter than the psychical world. These worlds obey different laws. The noetical world is in and around our material Earth, the Sun, and our solar system. Our entire solar system floats, as it were, in the noetical. But the psychical world is not as big, and they are contained within and slightly around the Earth, and each planet, the Sun, the Moon, and all heavenly bodies. So the psychical counterparts of each planet and all the other heavenly bodies do not touch. What about the noetic world? It is literally everywhere. There is no place it is not. All the worlds of existence, the material, the psychical, and noetical, are all contained in noetic state. Now, a book has just been released recently called The Hidden Reality by physicist Brian Greene. In it, he shows how the mathematics of quantum physics suggests that there are parallel universes coexisting simultaneously within the material universe. The psychical world with its 49 subplanes and the noetical world with its 49 subplanes are the parallel universes they are theorizing about. Of course, science is yet to prove this reality, but this is just like how decades ago the mathematics of Einstein suggested an expanding universe, but that was only recently proven. <laughs>